The evangelical world has no shortage of scandals. But are you ready for the real scandal? The real scandal of the evangelical mind. Hi, my name is Terence and I'm your host for Reading and Readers, a podcast where I review Christian books for you. Today, I review The Real Scandal of the Evangelical Mind by Carl Truman, 48 pages, published in January 2011 by Moody Publishers. You can get the Amazon Kindle book for $3.99 or you can get it for free from Faith Life. The Real Scandal of the Evangelical Mind is Faith Life's free book of demand. In 1995, historian Mark Knoll wrote The Scandal of the Evangelical Mind, where he pointed to the lack of a mind in the evangelical. 16 years later, in 2011, Carl Truman writes The Real Scandal of the Evangelical Mind, where he points to the lack of an evangel, the good news in the evangelical. 11 years later, in 2022, Michael Reeves writes The Real, Real Scandal of the Evangelical Mind, where he points to the real scandal, which is the lack of integrity. Or at least that would be my title for Michael Reeves' book, but perhaps 27 years is too long to play on a book title. The actual title for Michael Reeves' book is Gospel People, A Call for Evangelical Integrity which is a more respectable, less scandalous title. So you see uh, from these uh, three books that after nearly 30 years, evangelicalism remains a problem. It is a problem in defining what it is, a problem in moving the movement and moving it in the right direction. How do you solve a problem like evangelicalism? How do you catch clout and pin it down? How do you find a word that means evangelicalism? A flibbertigip, a willow of wits, a clown. And then comes Carl Truman in his book, with many a thing he'd like to tell evangelicals. Many a thing evangelicals ought to understand. Carl Truman is the professor of biblical and religious studies at Grove City College. He has written many books, including the much acclaimed The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, Cultural Amnesia, Expressive Individualism, and The Road to Sexual Revolution. I've read so many good reviews on this book that I have saved this book for a special occasion, much like you would save good wine. When I have a time, a longish break, and can enjoy this book without distraction, I'll break it out and read it. I first encountered Carl Truman's writing in First Things, which states in its website, uh, firstthings.com, that it is America's most influential journal of religion and public life. Truman's writings uh, reminds me of G.K. Chesterton. Uh, his uh, keen observation and playfulness is, is something that catches you off guard, especially with uh, absurd. That might, however, not be a fair comparison because, number one, I don't read enough G.K. Chesterton. I've only read one book by him. Number two, I don't read enough Carl Truman. Uh, today's book would be my first book or booklet by him. And number three, maybe I'm just comparing the two of them in a superficial manner because they are both British and they both write in a distinct British accent or way. Okay then, let's go to the book. After the acknowledgement and introduction, there are three chapters, which are number one, 
losing our religion. Number two, exclusion and the evangelical mind. Number three, the real scandal of the evangelical mind. With a book as short as this, 48 pages, there is a real risk of giving away the whole book in a review. So, for each chapter, I'll try to restrain myself to only one insight. In doing so, I'll show how a 11-year-old book by a historian theologian on a subject as amorphous as evangelicalism can explain what is wrong with people today and guide us on practical matters. In the first chapter, Truman begins by listing David Babington's definition of evangelicalism. Evangelicalism consists of four hallmarks, namely, number one, a high regard for the Bible as the primary source of spiritual truth, and number two, a focus on the atoning work of Christ on the cross. And number three, a belief in the necessity of spiritual conversion. And number four, the priority of publicly proclaiming and living out the gospel. Now, you would think that these four it would, would be a non-negotiable and would be very uh, clear in defining what is the true evangelical. However, Truman then proceeds to show how this uh, four hallmarks, this uh, definition, is weak because it still manages to group people that should not be grouped together. Imagine a United Nations Human Rights Council with members who are the vilest violators of human rights. That would just be silly. And in the same way, uh, for evangel evangelicalism, when the composition of the group is so mixed, so divergent, uh, it questions the cohesiveness of the label. As uh, I read this chapter, I get the sense of frustration coming out because uh, evangelicalism is supposed to be a clarifying force of good because you separate those who are evangelicals against those who are not. Instead of it being a clarifying force of good, we get this mess of a definition in which it is neither clarifying nor good, but it's somewhat of a force, I guess. That's why it keeps popping up in uh, books and articles and uh, cultural or news. All right. So now I could be overindulging. No, I'm definitely overindulging at this point because I'm going to, again, uh, use a song from The Sound of Music to describe the amorphous nature of evangelicalism. I think it is very... Um, it matches it quite well, actually. So have a listen to this and then uh, and think about e this evangelicalism. How do you hold a moonbeam in your hand? When I'm with her, I'm confused, out of focus and bemused, and I never know exactly where I am. Unpredictable as weather, she's as flighty as a feather. She's a darling, she's a demon, she's a lamb. She'd outpester any pest, drive a hornet from its nest. She could throw a whirling dervish out of world. She is gentle. She is wow. She's a riddle. She's a child. She's a headache. She's an angel. She's evangelicalism. Hmm. Now, in the movie, The Sound of Music, Maria is an out-of-place nun. She is a singing nun that doesn't seem to belong in this convent with other singing nuns. 
And fortunately, by the end of the movie, she discovers where she belongs, which is something that we are hoping evangelicalism would eventually find itself too. Because you see, belonging is a two-sided coin. To know where you belong is to know where you don't belong. And there is a boundary between those two states. And that is where Carl Truman leads the reader towards. Carl Truman argues that for evangelicalism to rise and triumph, eventually, maybe, hopefully, it needs to know where it belongs and where it doesn't belong. What it needs is a boundary. He writes, I quote, Admittedly, there are good historical reasons for the wider cultural fear of boundaries, the exclusion of Jews in Germany, segregation in the American South, and apartheid in South Africa all led to great evil. Exclusion has often been based on bigotry and used as a means of control, manipulation, and worst. Seen in this light, an ill-defined evangelicalism is in tune with the cultural moment, more kind and gentle and tasteful than an exclusive movement. However, the cultural distaste for boundaries is also connected to the cultural distaste for truth claims. Such claims necessarily exclude, and in a world where the it just feels right to me mentality of the Oprah Winfrey show is more acceptable than the authoritative thus says the Lord of Old Testament prophets. Affinities between the cultural mindset and, and the nebulous doctrine of much of evangelical, evangelicalism are clear. End quote. So he over here uh, argues quite convincingly that there is a need for boundaries. Uh, Truman later uh, writes, I quote, From the time of Paul, the church has drawn boundaries. Such has been considered necessary for her well-being and even for her survival. A movement that cannot or will not draw boundaries or that allows the modern cultural fear of exclusion to set its theological agenda is doomed to lose its doctrinal identity. Once it does, it will drift from whatever moorings it may have had in historic Christianity. End quote. Now, reading all this, it seems to me that the definition problem, how do we define evangelicalism, is kind of like sorting laundry. You have a pile of laundry in front of you, and if you ask someone to sort it, he might sort it by size, extra large, large, small, extra small, by gender, male clothes, female clothes, by color, or by any other category. But perhaps the most important category is ownership. Which of the clothes belongs to which person? And to know that, you, you have to know the owner. You have to hang around the owner long enough to whether he wears holy jeans or turtlenecks or pink scarves. You have to know the owner long enough or well enough so that you know what is his and what is not his. Evangelicalism ultimately, or perhaps it's uh, ideally, belongs to one person belongs to Jesus. He is the owner. And so, just like how clothes size need to match to the person, I mean, you can wish that that pair of jeans can fit you, and you can try to squeeze yourself into that pair of jeans, but wishing doesn't make it so. You can't fit. In the same way, a church's doctrine or teaching needs to match to Jesus. And you can try, you can try to tailor a looser or tighter teaching to fit on Jesus, 
But wishing doesn't make it so. You can try, but it doesn't fit. It just doesn't fit. The solution then is to know Jesus, okay, and thus determine which clothes, or sorry, which churches belong to him. So I think that would solve the definition problem. We must know who Jesus is. Moving to the second chapter. In the opening pages, uh, Truman reveals the scandal of the social climbing evangelical academic, okay, who, I quote, never misses a chance to trash anybody who stands, who happens to stand just to his right theologically. And later Truman continues, and it's a person who always finds something of value in and even fawns over those to his left. So he trashed those on the right and he fawns over those to his left. Now this is just a short uh, diversion because uh, I will, I'm reading another book which is uh, based on an honor and shame culture. And so as I was reading this book and I read what Truman is uh, writing over here, describing the evangelical, uh, what was it? A social climbing evangelical academic. And I was just startled to see that, hey, this is honor and shame over here. Now, maybe it's obvious to you, but uh, I always thought that honor and shame cultures uh, best describes Asian or Middle Eastern cultures. You know, those uh, Japanese harakiri or... Uh, Middle Eastern honor killings or Pakistani honor, honor killings. If, um, if you want to describe the West as an honor and shame culture, I would have thought that you would have to look back in history to Roman, Greco cultures or medieval knights or perhaps limit, limit it to uh, military subcultures, you know, the honor, medal of honor sort of uh, subculture in the modern times. However, <laughs> after reading Truman's description of evangelical academia, the scales came off my eyes. Hey, you professors, you are living, you are practicing an honor and shame culture. You see honor in belonging to the left and shame in belonging to the right. Honor and shame, let us just be clear, by itself is not a bad thing, but it is a powerful force. In one culture, this powerful force compels fathers to kill their own daughters. And perhaps it is this powerful force that is also compelling academics to kill their own beliefs. Now, just, that's just a side remark uh, from just reading these two books and then uh, just uh, the juxtaposition of these uh, ideas just came together. Truman's uh, main theme for chapter 2 is nothing about this. Truman's main theme is actually on the interplay between evangelicalism and culture. When you survey the landscape of evangelicalism, do you despair? Have you wondered why evangelical churches are renouncing or reconstructing or I would say rebranding their faith to embrace what the Bible seems to so clearly say is wrong? In this chapter, Truman takes the example, um, there are other examples, but one example is the uh, homosexuality and tells us, no, uh, he doesn't tell us. Remember, Truman wrote this 11 years ago. He predicts, okay, it's not just telling, he's predicting, how evangelicals would surrender to the growing pressure to embrace homosexuality. I mean, it's no surprise if the world outside the church was to uh, take in homosexuality. And I think that it's kind of expected, and that's a topic for another day. 
It's a different thing when the church, which claims that the Bible is the Word of God and uh, looks at the Scripture as uh, inspired and uh, authority over us, it's, it's a different thing when evangelicals embrace homosexuality. Uh, Truman writes, Predictably, there will be no, uh, I quote, Predictably, there will be no evangelical consensus on homosexuality because ethical consideration of it rests upon theological categories of biblical authority, creation, fall, Christology, redemption, and consummation. And there is no evangelical consensus in any of these areas. With evangelicalism no longer defined by doctrinal commitments, there can and will be no evangelical consensus on homosexuality. Marry this theological vagary to a strong desire for a place at the cultural table and greater acceptance of homosexuality among evangelicals is all but assured. End quote. Again, let me remind you that he wrote this 11 years ago. Now, I'm sure that churches who accept homosexuality will insist that they are acting in biblical convictions. I believe that uh, they rest their case mainly on God is love. Or at minimum, they may insist that the Bible doesn't speak clearly enough on the topic. It is a cultural taboo for the people at that time, but that is no longer valid for us today. We are more enlightened, apparently. So Truman imputes motive here. Uh, he is saying that uh, these, uh, uh, these evangelicals, uh, they do what they do because there is a strong desire for a place at the cultural table. Now this is a big subject, bigger than this book review or even this booklet. Uh, Truman's main point here is that evangelicals do not share an united view. There is no consensus on social issues because, because there is no consensus on doctrinal statements, on doctrinal commitments. My favorite part of the book is this one. Truman writes, I quote, It is likely that the coming cultural storm Storms will be best weathered by evangelical organizations and institutions with more precisely defined doctrinal statements, particularly statements that are close to or identical with historic creeds and confessions. The last 100 years of evangelicalism has shown that minimal doctrinal bases do not provide real resistance to heterodoxy and the downgrading of doctrine. Of course, no creed can safeguard orthodoxy alone. Fidelity and integrity on the part of leaders and gatekeepers are also required. But without a strong and complete doctrinal confession, gatekeeping becomes nearly impossible, even for well-intentioned and faithful leaders. End quote. At this point in my church life, I am reviewing the Baptist Faith and Message 2000 and trying to understand what this uh, statement means for my church. I note that many newer churches or, or movements uh, aim for minimal doctrinal, doctrinal statements because they don't want doctrine to be a barrier. They don't want it to be a barrier to outreach. They don't want it to be a barrier to entry. So we, don't want, a, we want a low barrier or no barrier. So they make the doctrinal statement as easy to understand as possible, as non-controversial as possible, but still being true to what? Uh, 
uh, we believe. Now, those are not bad aims because we do, we should try to make it easy to understand. Uh, we don't want it to be unnecessarily controversial and we do want it to be true to what we believe. Again, reminder that a controversy is not an out, is a controversy is an outcome of the truth. Controversy is not a goal to aim for. However, in addition to all, all that, um, what Truman say is right. We need a strong and complete doctrinal confession, not a minimal or lowest uh, common denominator. But having been so convinced of this, it is still very sad, uh, very, very sad to read the news. Um, I'm reading this book and uh, making this uh, book review in May 2022. Uh, I just recently read that uh, the Church of Scotland, the Church of the Fiery John Knox, has just recently endorsed the draft le legislation to let clergy marry same-sex couples. If uh, Albert Moeller is correct, and I heard this from his podcast, The Briefing, uh, apparently, apparently there was a study committee in the Church of Scotland, and both, both proponents and opponents agree that the Bible has a negative view on homosexuality. If this is the part I don't understand. If both proponents and opponents, both sides of the aisle, agree that the Bible says that this is a very bad thing, then how do we explain what is happening in the Church of Scotland? Now, I'm sure there is an explanation somewhere, um, but I'm not going to do a deep dive on it. If uh, anything, this just shows um, that as much as I want a strong and complete doctrinal statement, our hope is not in that. It's not in a statement, it's not in the creeds, it's not in the church history, it's not in our church heroes. Our hope is only in Jesus Christ. And may God have mercy on us all. Now going to the third chapter. Now compared to the first and second chapter, the third chapter is really short. And uh, this next part might be a spoiler, but because I'm going to quote the concluding paragraph to the chapter and thus the book. But if you have been listening intently thus far, much of what he says here is obvious. Truman writes, I quote, Abandoning the myth of the evangelical movement can only help us as it will free us to be who we truly are and to speak the gospel in all of its richness as we understand it. This is what our day and generation needs. The real scandal of the evangelical mind currently is not that it lacks a mind, but that it lacks any agreed-upon evangel. Until we acknowledge that this is the case, until we can agree on what exactly it is that constitutes the evangel, all talk about evangelicalism as a real coherent movement is likely to be little more than a chimera or a trick with smoke and mirrors. End quote. For me, the interesting part here is not him identifying the real scandal to be the lack of the evangel. By this point in the book, it is clear where his thesis lies. The interesting part is him saying we need to abandon the myth of the evangelical movement. Now, now keep your finger on that phrase, abandon the myth of the evangelical movement, the word abandon. Remember early on, I mentioned Michael Reeves' book, Gospel People? I didn't tell you then, but I'll tell you now. 
In Carl Truman's acknowledgement page, he dedicates the, this booklet to two individuals. One is Todd Pruitt, his co-host in the Mortification of Spin podcast. The other is, guess who? Yes, Michael Reeves. And uh, let me read an extract from that Gospel People book by Michael Reeves. I quote, Michael Reeves argues from a global scriptural and historical perspective that while it's not necessary to discard the label altogether, Christians must return to the root of the term, the evangel or gospel, in order to understand what it truly means. End quote. Truman says, abandon the myth of the evangelical movement. Reeves says, it's not necessary to discard the label altogether. Now, they are not contradicting each other, but it's interesting the way they describe what needs to be done. I haven't read Michael Reeves' book. I'm just pointing this book out because, I mean, uh, as you pick this uh, Faith Life book, uh, you may not know the existence of this uh, Michael Reeves book. So I just want to draw attention that there is a connection between uh, Truman and Reeves. After reading the 48-page booklet by Truman, you might want to know what has changed or not changed after 11 years. And you also might want to see the points where Truman and Reeves agree or disagree. In fact, I would love to see Truman and Reeves interact on this issue, on evangelicalism. And perhaps they have, but uh, a quick search on Google and YouTube did not show me any results of the two interacting. Perhaps uh, there's a problem with Google or YouTube and uh, maybe Elon Musk needs to buy them over. Now, since I can't find a book or a video or an article where the two of them uh, come together, maybe this is an opportunity for a book concept. Now, let me try to pitch it to you. The title of this book I'm pitching is uh, Eternal Sunshine of the Evangelical Mind. Do you like it? We have three chapters. Uh, Mark Noel will write the first chapter. He's the historian. He describes the events leading to the breakup within evangelicalism. Everyone just wants to forget the word evangelicalism in this chapter. It's just too painful. It's too heartbreaking. Oh no, it's such a mess. We just need to separate. Now in the second chapter, Carl Truman will describe how book publishers institutions and academics are lamenting at the loss of this easy-to-use group identifier, this label. But at the same time, they are all relishing at this entire new field of study dedicated to the death of evangelicalism. Truman, in this imaginary chapter, then notes how, like a good funeral, the death of evangelicalism brings all these groups together again as they sob together and cry and perhaps laugh at the same time. Then in the third chapter, Michael Reeves will describe how churches then feel a sense, a keen sense of loss. Perhaps there is some regret. Perhaps they were too quick to wipe out that memory. There was something special in the movement. And so evangelicals in this chapter agree to get back together and give evangelicalism another jolly good try. And that's how this uh, book, The Eternal Sunshine of the Evangelical Mind, would come together. What do you think? Does it sound like something you would buy? But uh, does that describe or predict what will happen in the next 10 years? 
Actually, all we want to see is uh, Mark Knoll, Carl Truman and Michael Reeves talk about the scandal of the evangelical mind. And perhaps one day we will get a book or video or interview along those lines. In conclusion, in conclusion, uh, if you're not familiar with evangelicalism, the, <laughs> the amorphous nature of it, uh, this 48-page uh, booklet by Carl Truman is a good primer. And as I hope to show you through my reflections, even if you are not invested in evangelicalism, you don't care much about the term, as do I, I'm not invested in it, you still can't escape from the phenomenon. It comes out through the books we read, and sad to say, it comes out in the politics and the wider societal issues that we see around us. The trick here is, having seen evangelicalism in the world around us and understanding how it came to be, we are now to navigate through this foggy, foggy landscape. And we need to navigate it through while holding on to this hope. And this hope, our hope in life and death is that we are not our own, but that we belong to God. And we belong to God, and one day, hopefully, evangelicalism will wake up to that. This is a Reading and Readers review of The Real Scandal of the Evangelical Mind by Carl Truman. 48 pages, published by Moody Publishers in 2011. It's available for $3.99 in Amazon Kindle or free from Faith Life's free book of the month. Do you like your podcast to be scandal-free? A podcast that shows no lack of a sharp mind, a strong evangel, and gospel integrity. So do I. So if you have managed to find one, please let me know. You can find my contact details at www.readingandreaders.com. Please send me an email at www.readingandreaders.com when you find that perfect podcast. In the meantime, while we are all searching, perhaps you can consider subscribing to Reading and Readers, a podcast where I review scandalous, I mean, sorry, I, uh, where I review Christian books for you. Thank you for listening.